Welcome to the South Fellowship Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. So amazing about that video is um, I lived most of those black and white videos. I was kind of in them growing up. Uh, I said in the first service, it's cool, but it's also frightening to think how old I am. But uh, I'm up taking nourishment this morning, and I'm here with you, and I'm so delighted to be here with you. Uh, My wife and I were lead pastors for, um, as a couple, for 35 years. And uh, this is the last church that we served for 16 years in a, a pretty tough neighborhood in the toughest city, in my opinion, in the country, Detroit, Michigan. But you can see just from that um, that gathering of human beings, we, we sometimes would come together and pray over someone or just pray together as a community at the end of the service. And it, it's that kind of uh, the love of Jesus lived out in community that we were looking for when we moved to Colorado just a few, um, well, about 15 months ago to be with our our daughters, uh, all three of whom have landed in this area, and our six grandkids, and sons-in-law and whatnot. And we weren't even really trying to come to South because our oldest daughter, Andrea, some of you know Andrea, she's out at the book table with her smallest little baby girl, uh, we're, and her husband are, were already coming here. And uh, my, my other, one of my, my middle daughter and, and um, her husband were thinking about coming here. And we weren't trying to be those helicopter parents that are just up in their business all the time. And so we weren't really trying to come here, but we walked in to South and felt that. I mean, and who am I to say this to you? But this is just, I can, I can speak my own truth, right? We feel Jesus and his love here. And uh, so that, on top of the fact that we have six grandkids running around and jumping into your arms and get to see our, my, my, my precious girls who are still my heart. Um, uh, Carla and my wife, Carla, is sitting right here. We're here also because we feel you and your heart for Jesus. So thank you so much for welcoming us. So um, as I share with you today, um, you know, you don't know me. And I'm, I'm often, when I, when I fly places and speak, I will often say this. You, you guys hopefully will get to know us. And we'll get to know you. But right now, most of you don't know me. I'm always thinking, why would you listen to somebody you don't know? You don't, in fact, with the way pastoring is going today in the country, I mean, and what's coming out every week about somebody that's standing up front, why would you listen to me? I mean, Alex did vet me. So if I'm not who he said I was, you can blame him. But let me just say this, and you can see if you can believe this for me or not this morning. Um, I feel you, your hopes, your dreams, your disappointments, your joys, your sorrows. The reason I feel you is because I am you. So as I share this morning, hopefully you won't take anything that I say coming from some talking head but that you'll receive me as a brother, just sharing out of my own experience with the word and also with life. I'm old, so I've got maybe something behind me to back up what I've studied in the scripture. Hopefully you'll receive my words as the words of a loving brother. So today I'm gonna talk about shame. That's our emotion of the morning. Love's opposite. And what I've come to believe is Satan's primary weapon of destruction in our lives. First, a little bit of my own story and how shame almost destroyed me. I grew up in a Christian home. I trusted Christ at the age of five in that Christian home. But how many of you know that a home can be Christian? You can believe in the Nicene Creed, but it can still be really emotionally jacked up. 
And so the way I responded to that pain was that I became the super Christian youth group kid, no partying in high school. I was an athlete, but I just didn't go to any of the parties, wasn't invited because probably I was a downer because of what I wouldn't do and wouldn't get involved with. Um, I would get up early in the morning, study the Bible, went to a Christian university, uh, played football there, became a a small college All-American. Not, in my view, not because I was that great, but because I had so much baggage inside. Sometimes what doesn't work well in culture will work well in sports, like the anger that I carried. Um, And I would be the guy who would lead the team out into churches and where we talked about Jesus and, and young people would think it was cool because we played college ball and whatnot. Then I went on to seminary and, and won an award there for this, that, and the other. And then I became a pastor and that was going pretty well. So the point is, growing up in this performance-based life in this Christian home that was so jacked up with so much baggage, um, I had become fairly successful But I was, oh, so desperately empty. And there were signs along the way. Um, I'm not going to give you the whole story this morning. We don't have time, but also just we're new in this community. So we want you just to take us at face value. When we get to know you, we'll share more. But um, for the first, I don't know how many years of my marriage, I was a real bully. Very misogynistic. I'm ashamed to tell you that, especially sisters. I hope you'll realize that God has done some healing in my life and that I so deeply respect daughters of God and my sisters in Christ. But back then, not so much. Even though I was in love with my wife, um, I did not treat her well. Um, And then, you know, when we got kids, I I can remember this distinctly as being one of those signs of emptiness. We used to sit. I'd come home from work. We'd sit and watch Mr. Rogers in this big Um, this big lazy boy chair that eventually we had to throw out, not because it wore out, but because there were so many Skittles and Cheerios and what, I mean, it was absolutely disgusting. So, and I, you know, I'm the kind of guy that would live in college dorm furniture forever, but even that disgusted me. So we had to throw it out, but it was a good chair because my girls would sit there with me and drape over me. We'd watch Mr. Rogers and I would sit and cry. And I would especially cry when he sang this song. It's you I like. It's not the things you wear. It's not the way you do your hair, but it's you I like. The way you are right now, the way deep down inside you, not the things that hide you, not your awards. They're just beside you, but it's you I like. Every part of you. And I would sit and cry but I didn't know why. I mean, my, my middle daughter, who was out there with my oldest daughter, she became a therapist. I think these were some of the early moments of her therapeutic sensitivity. Um, and she would see my tears. In fact, one time I distinctly remember her touching them to see if they were real. And then she, I remember her saying to her sister, Daddy's crying. And then she'd say, why are you crying, Daddy? And honestly, my brothers and sisters, I had no idea. But today I do. I wanted somebody to sing those words to me. I wanted God to sing those words to me. And then finally, at the age of 36, pastoring a church, some degree of success, went north of uh, Detroit to give a talk. Yay, on the way home. I just, the performance thing had emptied me out, and I didn't even think I was suicidal, but came within an ad's eyelash of driving off the freeway into the cement embankment on I-94, just a mile from where my three babies and my, my precious best friend were sleeping. Um, 
I was full of Bible. By the time I graduated from seminary, I was telling the early group, I had six and a half years of Greek, two years of Hebrew, three years of Latin. I mean, this Bible was everywhere on me. It was all over me. And yet I was so empty inside. With all the success, with all the plaques on the wall, I was so empty inside. To quote Brennan Manning, an author you may have read, I was like a travel agent handing out brochures to places I'd never been. I could preach a fantastic sermon on love and maybe make you cry about how much God loved you, but I had no idea that he loved me. And what I've come to realize um, later on in life is that what was emptying me out was not just the absence of love, but the presence of this emotion called shame. Because where love isn't, shame moves in. So that suicide started me on a healing journey out of shame and into the love of God. So let's look at, there's shame. That's the topic. Let's look at a definition of shame so we can get into this. First of all, it's a painful emotion. Most, most on the, at the bottom level of definition, it's a painful emotion generally described as deep humiliation and embarrassment. Sometimes it's not all that negative. Sometimes it's the feeling that we have when we're just being human. So I was preaching in New York City uh, we were thinking about going from Detroit there to a church there called Calvary Baptist, right on 57th Street in New York City, right down from Radio City Music Hall. I mean, it was unbelievable. I just, the most diverse community I've ever been in. I wept in the morning service, just preaching the prodigal son to them in the evening. Smaller crowd, you know, they wanted me to preach again, and then they were going to take me out for coffee and see if we wanted to come. And so the elders came up after the evening service, and the chairman of the elders says, want to take you out to, for coffee and pizza? But we have one request. I said, anything. He said, please zip up your pants. <laughs> I, some of you don't get it. I had preached that entire sermon. And by the way, it was a sermon on shame. I had preached that entire sermon. You can't make this up. I preached that entire sermon with my zipper down. What did I feel that day? I felt like the innocuous version of <laughs> shame. And I can guarantee you, I zipped up my pants. I checked them several times before I came into this service this morning, the second one. But the shame that we're talking about that sucks the life out of us and is there when the love of God isn't is defined like this. It's an irrational sense of defectiveness, not just feeling human. You're not even, you're less than human. It's the pathological belief that one is at the core a deformed being, fundamentally unlovable and unworthy of membership in the human community. It is the, don't miss this, the self regarding the self with a withering, unforgiving eye of contempt. Sandra Wilson, a Christian psychologist, wrote a beautiful book that's been revised on shame, and it's really, really good. She said, shame is when it feels like you're standing alone on one side of a broken bridge while the whole world stares at you from the other side. I think it's really, really important that we differentiate between guilt and shame. Guilt is about what I do. Shame is about who I am. Guilt, when we feel guilty, it's appropriate to feel true guilt when we have literally erred, when we've sinned, when we've, we've uh, the word hamartia means uh, to miss the mark. When God says, this is a life-giving pathway and we choose another pathway. Well, if God loves us, he's gonna speak to us through his Holy Spirit and say, that's not for you, daughter. Hey, son, you're off in the far country. You need to come home. That's appropriate. What the father, a good father, will never do is say this to you, you loser. 
You will never get your act together. When you hear that voice, it's never the voice of God the Father. It's always the voice of the enemy from hell. Secondly, guilt tells me I made a mistake. Shame shouts I am a mistake. Guilt is about activity. Our actions don't tell us who we are. It's something we did. It's not who we are. But with shame, we were born wrong. You can correct a mistake. What do you do when you're born defective? And there's nothing that can be done about it. It, It's a difference between dealing with activity and identity. And then thirdly, guilt can be forgiven. Shame requires me to cease to exist. Many of us know that famous passage uh, out of 1 John. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a wonderful truth. That if we screw up today, the word confession, uh, I think it's homo, it just means to tell God you agree. You, you, you screwed up, and he says, forgiveness through the blood of my son, right now, like that. It's a wonderful promise. What we feel after we've confessed sin, when we still feel like we want to crawl into a hole that's opening up in the ground around us and disappear, that's called shame. The truth is, shame is absolutely everywhere. Shame, according to the Atlantic Monthly, who did a whole spread on this back in 1992, shame is the number one negative emotion in the West. And that seems like quite a few years ago, but I can promise you scholars and uh, theoreticians will say the same thing today. Shame, in fact, Dr. Brené Brown, you might have listened to this podcast just recently, 2012. Shame is an unspoken epidemic, the secret behind many forms of broken behavior. The, um, she talks about this, I think, in one of her books. After she gave that TED Talk on shame that went viral, it put her really on the map. Um, she went home and didn't come out of the house for three days. You know why? Because of shame. Just because you can control the data intellectually doesn't mean it still doesn't impact your heart. And then this is from Dr. Uh, Kurt Thompson, who's written several books, one amazing book on shame itself. He says... Shame is everywhere, and there's virtually nothing left untainted by it. It is ubiquitous, seeping into every nook and cranny of life, infecting not just our thoughts, but our sensations, images, feelings. And I want, we're going to come back to this phrase in a, in a little bit. Ultimately, even our behavior. Some of us have been fed this bill of goods that contributes to our shame, that the reason that we sin primarily is because we're a piece of shameful, sinful dirt, But what if we don't sin in a vacuum? What if we sin in soil that is tainted by this diabolical emotion that comes from our enemy called shame? And then Thompson closes by saying, it just doesn't seem to go away. Well, I've already said it, but let's dive in a little deeper. Where does shame come from? From hell, of course. Where does it first appear in the scripture? Uh, Genesis chapter two, verse 25. And Alex did such an amazing job of unpacking this text, uh, talking about our co-creativity with, with our father. It was really well done, son, in my, in my humble opinion. But um, th- this is just a little bit of a different slant. Let's look at 225. I'm gonna look at, at uh, what, what this text says. At the apex of creation, it says, the man and his wife were both naked, which was maybe physically naked, probably physically naked, but representative of an emotional safety that brought them, their hearts to the surface. 
but they were absolutely not ashamed. There's no shame. 225, the apex of creation, all is well. God created man, or Adam and Eve, out of love, gave them to each other to love, and surrounded them with his love so that Adam and Eve in 225, don't miss this, they knew nothing about good and evil. Those words were not a part of their vocabulary. They knew nothing about performance, failure, fear of rejection. All of those are shame byproducts. Here's the deal. I've come to believe that their life there in 225, where they had safety and freedom because they were immersed in love, is the intention of God for all of human beings to live for all eternity. It was never supposed to be different than Genesis 2.25. Because to live surrounded by his love is the way he made us. If, if, if we could take a poll this morning, when you get up in the morning, do you first see in some form, the Ten Commandments on the wall. You wake up and you go, there's what I got to get done today. I mean, you have your own version of the commandments. I need to be this good person. I need to be that. I need to be a better. I need to be. And so you wake up and you start feeling shame already because you don't, you're like the law. The law just jumps at you and says, get it done. But what if we were intended to get up in the morning and the first thing we see is our heavenly father? The way Adam and Eve woke up every day. Good morning, Lord. Man, so good to see you as they embraced and however that worked in the cosmology of his person and theirs. We were created to respond, not first and foremost to the rules, even God's rules, because those are always good. We weren't created to first respond to rules. We were created to respond to love. In fact, I think the quote is there. I can't see. Yeah, I think it is. Uh, this is what Kurt Thompson, I'm a groupie. This is what he said um, as well. He says, in fact, I heard him say this live. We all come out of the womb looking for someone, looking for us with love and delight. So when that baby um, is born and they start doing this and they begin to open their eyes, they immediately, this is the way their brains are created by God, to look for love to tell them who they are. If they get love, neurobiologists tell us, we know this much about the brain. If they get love, the brain begins to flourish. If that baby, and they know this as early as the third trimester in the womb, they can tell if the baby, the baby can tell, and they can tell by hooking the baby's brain up to whatever neurobiologists hook it up to. When they hook it up to the child, they can tell whether that baby is feeling loved or shamed, wanted or unwanted, third trimester in the womb. And they tell us that what happens is shame. If they don't receive love, even in that last trimester, the brain begins to shrink. It begins to become dysfunctional. By the way, neurobiologists also tell us the only way that shame can be mitigated is by love. It's in the scriptures. We'll see in a moment. That is a neurobiological reality. So here's a couple pictures um, this is on the left, and some of you remember the day when you didn't just go into a delivery room, you had to go into an operating room, and you had to wear all the scrubs, and uh, there were bright lights and whatever. Well, this is me with that ridiculous mustache. <laughs> when I eventually shaved that, my six-year-old, I came out of the bathroom, we were in a hotel, my six or seven-year-old, I think she was about that age, Carla, she came out and she saw me and she wept. She wept. 
and she went into the bathroom to look for it. And it was obviously, it was down the drain. I'll never forget that. This is my baby girl, Andrea, who's sitting at the book table outside. Her husband is one of our elders. And uh, I'm looking at her and she's, you can't see it. Her eyes were just, you know, beginning to open. They just put that, um, I forget what they put, silver nitrate or something on the eyes. And, but can I tell you, To this day, starting here, when I look at that girl, I want her to feel me looking at her with love and delight because that's the way she's made. And I want her to be able to feel that for me. And then her next thought, I want her to be able to say, my dad loves me well, but he's just pointing the way to the God who loves me perfectly as my heavenly father. And, and here we are, 38 years later, and here I am. Um, I know I look pretty much the same, but that's still me. It's still me. And I'm looking into my baby's, baby's eyes. And look at her. You say, what's she thinking? She's not consciously thinking in the way that you and I would you know, put words onto our thoughts. But I can promise you because she's been made, as Kurt Thompson said, in the image of a God who is love. She is looking for me to look at her with love and delight. When I used to do baby dedications back in our 35 years of pastoring, especially the more I understood about the love of God, I would take a baby like that. And I know some of these parents were freaked out. They were like, he's going to drop my kid. He's going to drop my kid. He's going to drop my kid. But never dropped one, never dropped one. (laughs) I would hold that child up like this. And I'd walk around in the audience and I would say, what would it be like today if you envisioned for a moment that this is you And I know it's a stretch, but if you can envision your pastor as being the father, God the father who loves you, and then you could tell they were going somewhere in their minds, and then I would just take that baby, and I would just, I love you, sweetie. I love you so much. And you would look out, tears running down the faces of folks. You know why? Like Kurt Thompson said the day that I heard him say this quote, he said, today, I'm still looking for that very same thing. Folks who will look at me with love and delight. If I could, I would just leave this picture up for the rest of the time. So instead of looking at quotes and notes, I would just want you to take in what this represents. It represents, my brothers and sisters, what we're all made to long for. And the enemy knows that when we get this, we live powerfully. We live freely into the specific gifting and the niche that God has given us on this planet. There's no two of you anywhere in time and space and history or on this planet right now. You have your own unique niche when, we, when we're full of shame, we're shut down. When we receive love, we live free. We take God's redemptive love into the broken world, who, by the way, isn't looking for our doctrinal statement. They are looking for someone looking for them with love and delight. I'm convinced that this is the reason that Jesus, at the end of his, almost at the end of his speech to his disciples before he left the planet, when he was saying, I'm leaving, you're staying. This is what I want you to be about. This is what he comes up with. He says, as the Father has loved me, this is the way I've loved you. Don't forget this. 
You've got to live here. Make your home in, abide in my love. I'm convinced he was simply, Jesus, the logos of God was simply repeating Genesis 2.25. He was saying, this is where we've always been intended to live. I've come to bring us back home to the love of the Father, which will set us free. So, as you know, Satan's not having any of that. And so, again, not to pull up the entire text, because Alex did that so well last week. What Satan basically says in Genesis 3, he shows up in the form of a serpent. He says, God's love is not enough. My brothers and sisters, it's the same lie he tells today. It's not enough. I I spoke to a, a, a ton of men, 120 men the other night, about this love, a different kind of a talk. And at the end, one of the brothers came up and he said, but tell me more about discipline. And I said, discipline is important, a little. But I said, when David, have you, I, said, my, I said, brother, don't take me judgmentally, but have you you've read the Psalms lately? David said, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. I said, does that sound like discipline to you? Or does it sound like a, a son who knows that he's got a father who loves him and, and his life is a desert. He literally feels the effect of death unless he gets with that God. And so I, where religion takes us because Satan uses religion, even Christianity, is toward a shame-based disciplined lifestyle which will take us only so far and will never give us freedom away from the love that God says if you'll live here if you will abide in my love then it will be enough and in fact Jesus goes on to say in that same passage if you love me because I love you you will obey my commandments nothing about discipline lots about being saturated in his love so God says to Adam and Eve it's not enough um You have to be about the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which Bruce Walkie says in his incredible commentary on Genesis, he says it was an invitation into spiritual autonomy. God's good, but just take a step. Yeah, you need his love, but it's not enough. It's not holy enough. Take a step toward this spiritual autonomy of trying to figure out the knowledge of good and evil. Get involved with the rules. Figure it out. And so shame is born. And the death that God predicted. If you eat of the tree, you will surely die. Manifests itself in a relational way. And here it is. Adam and Eve made themselves coverings. They began to hide. Naked and not ashamed to hiding. That's the product of shame. They began to hide from themselves, from one another, and from God. In fact, in this text, the word hide or cover is used at least four times uh, to show the impact of shame. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. It hurt the relationship with God. How many of us, when we pray, really don't tell him everything? I'm just saying, I'm not judging. I'm you, remember, I'm you. It's the product of shame. How do we come close if we don't say, here I am, Lord? He's right there. He's not going anywhere. We feel the intimacy when we say, here I am, and he meets us with his love. Where are you, Adam? He says, God knew where Adam was. I think he wanted to know if Adam knew where he was. Adam had started to run and divide from himself. The woman you gave me, she gave me of the tree. Naked and not ashamed to, it's her fault. The serpent deceived me, Eve says. The devil made me do it. It it divorces us from taking any true responsibility for our journey. And then, of course, God had said, you will surely die by Genesis 4. Somebody was dead. Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. That's the impact of shame. It divides us relationally. Relational death. 
relational death. Don't have time to get in this much, but before we kind of begin to land the plane, um, I've given you the history and the theology a little bit of Genesis, where shame enters. You know where shame enters us most prolifically in our personal lives? Through shame-based family systems. I mean, what if mom and dad don't know the love of God? They're, they're made to know it, but what if they grew up in shame? So we give, listen, we give away what we've received. If we've received 20, 40% of love, not that you can ever categorize that or percentage, percentageize it, but if we've received 40%, we're, we're giving 40, the rest of it is shame. And the most well-meaning parents will pass on that. I was one of those well-meaning parents. One time, while I was trying to heal from shame, we, I remember we did a series on how to parent well, and we didn't talk on shame back in our church, two-service church back in Detroit. And um, I asked my oldest daughters, Andrea and Lan, if they'd do a little role play with me. My oldest daughter, I mean, she was all about it, and she was like, like a little actress. And so I stood up there and played. I wanted people to feel this, and so I pre- played the big, strong, tall, shaming father. Blah, blah, blah. I mean, I, and I really put, put it on. And Andrea was like, oh, daddy, that isn't the way to parent me or something like that. In other words, she just really played the role. And everybody clapped and everybody got it. And you know, parents went home and started to evaluate. My parent got of love or shame. Second service, my little Leanne, the therapist, the sensitive one, the one that would you know, touch my tears in my cheek. She got up there and I played the big, strong, shaming dad. And she was about this tall. And she stood there as I shamed her in a play act. And she started to weep. She said, Daddy, I don't want to do this anymore. In front of 400 people. And of course, what I did is I got on my knees. And I went like this. And took her in my arms. Remember this, sweetie? And she sat, Carla sat on the front row. And I just gave her to uh, my wife. And I, I don't know what happened after that, quite frankly. But this I can tell you, in that moment... A role play became a reenactment. My little girl had begun to internalize the shame of this shame-based father who loved her deeply. But if what we have is shame, that's what we give. I was saying in the first service, we had to do a retreat sometime and just unpack more of this as it relates to parents. I think it would be really life-giving and healing. And then if it's not the family system, it's culture. Magazines, television shows, the neighbors next door, it's the way culture is, pushes at us this feeling of you'll never measure up, you'll never be good enough, you'll never make it. You're not like the rest of us. We're over here on this side of the bridge. You stand alone on the other side. And I remember being a seventh grader. We ought to be able to skip junior high altogether. Raise your hand if you agree with that. Skip it. Skip it. I might run for the school board and see if we can get that done. I mean, that's, it just, it's, you're, you're so confused at that age. I was seventh grade, shame-based home, all kinds of stuff going on, along with a lot of Jesus talk. And God bless my parents. I don't mean to disrespect them. They did the best they could with what they had, but they grew up in that mess themselves. And so my mom, we didn't have much money until my dad got a little bit more successful. And so 
she had to order my pants out of a JCPenney catalog. And how many of you know that back in the day, the catalogs, they looked like this color and it turned out to be this color. So she ordered these green pants. And I'm telling you, when I put them on, you could not find this color anywhere in nature. I'm telling you, it, is, it might've been on a color wheel somewhere, but you, you look in the closet, you couldn't find a shirt to go with these uh, pants. So I put on something and I went to school, dutifully sat in the middle of my health class and the big, tall, former college basketball player, six foot seven, Mr. Maupin, that everybody just worshiped him and loved him. And I was an aspiring athlete. I wanted him to like me. He sat down, looked around the room, saw me and shouted, nice outfit, butcher. Fair enough. I mean, you could put it on a sitcom about, you know, whatever. But you know what I remember that day? It's almost like I, it was like going to the county fair and looking at one of those mirrors where the faces are all like this, you know, and they're all warped. I remember, I'm 60, almost 68. I would have been 13. And as I tell you that story, and I, and I look at you and you're envisioning me in those green pants, I'm having a visceral reaction inside my heart of all those kids turning at me and laughing. Can you imagine why teen suicide is going like this? These kids are just kids and they're trying to deal with the shame of shame-based parents. They're trying to deal with the shame that pushes at them from culture. Many of them don't know that there's a God who loves them with all of his heart. So again, as we turn the corner here, let's get really personal about this. I'm gonna ask you to have some courage as we just kind of look at a few things in the way it might've impacted us. First, um, this is again, Kurt Thompson. Shame is used to dismantle us as individuals in communities and destroy all of God's creation. It is the primary tool that evil leverages out of which emerges anything that we would call sin. Isn't it interesting? We talked about shame in Genesis 2. Who, what, what's the name assigned to the enemy, the serpent in Revelation 12? The accuser of the brothers and sisters accusing them day and night. And then this is from my second book, not because I just like quoting my books, but I think it's a good quote to back up what Dr. Thompson says. Um, I referenced this earlier. I said, we're gonna come back to this. We don't sin in a vacuum. We don't just wake up in the morning going, gosh, sin, I think I'm all about it. If we're in our right minds, we don't, that's not us. We choose sin under the influence of a deadly spiritual toxin called shame. God loves us and created us to respond most naturally to his love. And while we can foolishly choose to disobey despite his love, his love never, ever gives us reason to disobey. Only shame beckons us toward the darkness. I'm not giving us a pass to sin, to go, oh, it was the shame. It was the serpent, like Eve said, Eve said. I'm giving us some space to stop shaming ourselves about our sin so we can begin to heal with the love of Christ so that we want to obey the one who loves us. I used to think all about the rules. That was my life. Jesus died to give us more rules. That's kind of how I interpreted it as a kid. Today, 
this is not me being spiritual. If you know me, I, I am, I'm the polar opposite of that. I'm just telling you because I'm old and I've done a little healing work. I never think about the rules. But every moment of every day, I think about the one who calls me his beloved son. And I can still choose to ignore that love. And sometimes I do, ridiculously so. But more often than not, these days, I'm like, thanks, Abba. And I live out of that love, never once thinking about anybody's version of the rules. So shame destroys relationships with ourselves, with others, and with God. Check out a few of these. We don't have a lot of time. Um, Maybe someday, if Alex and the staff give me permission, we can go deeper in some kind of a Bible study about this. Um, since I, I, we, this is our church, this is our, this is our home, and we, we want to serve, we want to use our gifts in the way that God can use us. What if this is one of the signs that you might be wrestling today? When we don't know who we are or secretly hate who we are, we're wrestling with shame because we don't quite know who, the love of God. This is hard to admit, by the way. You walk into a room, you don't know where to go. And so you go to a a crowd of somebody's and then you find yourself start to morph into what the crowd is instead of just being yourself. I'm sure you've done that. I've done that. Could it be because we don't really know who we are? And if I asked you today who you are, you might give me a version of what your mama thought you were supposed to be or what your last church tried to force you to be. But who are we? And on steroids, that lack of identity turns into self-hatred. And you might say, can a real Christian hate themselves? I did. The night I wanted to die, I hated myself. With all of the awards on the wall, I hated myself. It's not easy to admit, is it? Can you imagine coming in from the South parking lot, all those smiling faces, and you, you say to your friend, Bill, hey, Bill, how you doing? He goes, good. And he looks back at you and says, hey, Kev, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good. I hate myself, but otherwise I'm fine. Where is the space? I can, here's what I can tell you because I'm old again and I, I, I know people. I am you, remember? There are some self-haters in here today. And I just want to tell you, God loves you. You have a father who loves you. And that self-hatred that comes from shame, maybe it's the voice of your Absent father, I don't know how you were hurt and how you're presently being hurt. This I can tell you. God loves you and he wants to heal that broken, wounded place. So you don't have to go around the rest of your life thinking that you're not wanted and you don't even want yourself. You can heal through the love of Jesus Christ. You can begin to get free. How about tormented by voices from childhood? How would my daughter, if all I was was, you need to and stop, and will you ever amount to anything? How would she ever be able to hear the voice of her Abba saying, you are my beloved daughter and whom I am well pleased? Part of our healing is owning those voices and knowing that the love of Jesus can heal them. What if we're constantly looking for approval? Could that be a sign? It's good to be encouraged, but I can remember early on in my journey from, lo- from shame to love, after I would preach, I, I mean, my sleeves are rolled up now, but I literally, if they weren't, I would roll them up, and I wouldn't do this physically, obviously, it'd be obnoxious, but I would come down, and I'm telling, do you think I was looking just to minister to the saints? 
No, I was like, tell me something, man. Shoot it up, man. I mean, I've seen heroin addicts shoot up. I wanted them to shoot me with something from out here that would make me feel for a minute that I was okay because after I got done unveiling and, and feeling the wounds of life that I hadn't healed from yet, I came down. I just wanted to tell me I was okay. When we want affection and control. Some of us live with that in our marriages. We want our spouse to be something. Their affirmation of you, brother or sister, can never heal the wound. Their love can create space for that healing, but at some point we've got to own this and begin to hear the voice of the Father calling us his beloved sons and daughters. How about when we're constantly critical of others? That's usually motivated by an internal critic. I can tell to this day and Carla can tell as well, when I get critical of her, and I'm not just saying when you share with your spouse, could you do that and not this? Would that be okay? That's a need I have. That's fair. But when you have that critical thing going, you're just picking, that's never about her. That's always about that internal critic of shame inside my heart. Another sign that we're struggling. What about having difficulty in relationships? Could it be for, for about the first decade of our marriage, Carla could tell I was trying to you know, get something from her. And I remember one day her saying to me, what do you want from me? I didn't know. Now I know. I wanted her to fill up the hole in my heart that only the love of God and Jesus Christ could fill. I wanted her love to push back the darkness. She's just a person. Her love has, can be the icing in my journey as a human being. It can never be the cake. No friend can take the place with their love of the love of the Father for you and for me. How about never at peace, constantly driven? And I know sometimes we make all kinds of excuses for just being the energizer buddy. We're always going. And I know we live busy lives and all of that is fair and good. I'm not judging anybody here this morning, but could it be that sometimes we keep on going because if we stop the voices of shame begin to rise up in our spirit. And if we pause, we'll have to listen to what that voice is saying and realize that we need to do some healing work. How about addictive tendencies, addictions of any kind, whether they're like off the streets of Detroit, um, where we saw so much, you know, crack and heroin and alcohol. I can tell you so many stories. The first book is full of stories of folk who met the love of God on that porch that were totally addicted. But I mean some of the, the other kinds of addictions. You know, when you're like a, at a little league game and some dad's going, that wasn't a strike. That, that brother's addicted, man. Do you think he's, I mean, I'm not judging that brother, but I just know people. Do you think he's there because he just is trying to give his son a good experience? The shame is pouring out of him. He's addicted to his son's performance. And that, that, that umpire just messed it up. So even some of those, you know, you could be addicted to church. It's where you get all your feels that make you not have to deal with the pain inside. Addictive tendencies always mask longing for the love to drive back the shame. And then, of course, struggling to find intimacy with God. And Christianity is, I got, a, I got an email last year when I was writing my second book. A guy said, a guy was saying, sign up, you know, give me a hundred bucks and I'll, I'll share with you 20 prayer habits that will make you successful in your prayer life. And that, that thing was dripping with shame. And I thought, 
wait, I've got a God who loves me that I want to talk to all day long, and you're trying to give me a habit? And if I don't live into the habit, I feel like what? And so delete. God bless him or her, whoever it was. But we feel so much shame when we don't get up in the morning and read this book. I know some of us do. I was that guy. And, and, and Caroline, my youngest daughter, who's doing her master's right now over at UC Colorado or UC Boulder, she said to me one time, why would I want to read this Bible, Dad, when, when I open it up, what I, what I feel is what I'm not doing that I'm supposed to be doing or what I'm doing that I'm not supposed to be doing. When shame is at the core of our relationship with God, with his word, with prayer, who would want to? It's not about you being more disciplined. Take that off your shoulders. In my opinion, it has much to do with healing from shame and learning to receive the voice of the Father that says, I love you. And as we begin to know that love, we will be running to this book, not as a rule book for our Christianity, but as a handbook of love for how much he loves us in Christ every moment, every day of our lives. So finally, how do we heal? And I think first of all, and I don't know if I've done a very good job of communicating this, but let me see if I can share this paradigm. We, on a daily basis, moment by moment, will either choose to live maybe somewhat in touch with the love of God like Adam and Eve but really about the tree of knowledge of good and evil what what are the rules today how can I try harder how can I get with them how can I buckle down how can I listen to six more sermon series how can I buy that new translation of the Bible that's sure to change my spiritual journey all's going to be well because I got the latest transition off of Amazon I need you know we either live there and it sucks the life out of us. Made me want to die. Or we say, that is bondage. That is death. And I've got a God who says through his son, make your home in my love. And my love will set you free. Now, for the next hour, I'd like to talk to you. But no, I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing. I know I'm long. This could be my last appearance at uh, South. You never know. Um, I really, you, you would not know how much I whittled this talk down, but it's still where it, I'm, it is what it is. Um, the reason we know we can heal, there's lots of reasons, but this is one of them. Look at this text out of the book of Hebrews. Forget Christianity for a minute. Forget it. Forget it. I don't even use the word anymore. People say, what are you? They see me studying the Bible. Um, I follow Jesus of Nazareth and I love him. You say Christianity and it will take them places that you don't want them to go. So let's stop looking at Christianity for a moment. Looking unto Jesus. The author and finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him, well, there's so much there. But he endured the cross, despising the shame. The, the word despise, the Greek word could either mean looking at shame with contempt and saying, you're done. 
Or it could mean, conversely, maybe both of these are impacted here. It could mean he, when shame tried to derail Jesus from going to the cross, he said, you are nothing to me. I'm the son of God, and I love, my, I love the folks I'm dying for. You are nothing to me. But he despised the shame. This is a reference to Genesis 3, I promise. Can you imagine Satan entered the world with shame and the Savior, the Deliverer, is conquering shame at the cross that forgives us for all time and space and eternity. He despised the shame and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus whooped shame at the cross with his love. That's why we can defeat shame. I don't think sometimes we think of, and I didn't for years and years, think of shame, the cross being a shame bearing instrument. It was just like, it hurts. If you've, if you've ever seen the pictures, I mean, it's torture. But for the Romans, it wasn't just torture. It was about putting that crucified victim, crucifixion victim, near a road. Like if this is Golgotha, there would be a road here. We, he wouldn't be crucified. They wouldn't be crucified way back here because then people would have to look from afar. It would be right here. So people could see the pain and say, that's what happens when you defy Rome. But it wasn't just the torture. It was the nakedness. I don't want to offend any of our sensibilities, and I understand why the medieval painters, the masters, painted Jesus with a loincloth, but the Romans never crucified anyone with a loincloth. The Son of God bled naked on a Roman cross. He told shame to go back to hell where it came from. Because he loved us. David Crowder has that song. It's a long road up Golgotha Hill, but there ain't no stopping love. And then the Jewish community, they wagged their heads. The old King James says, they, they looked at him and said, yeah, you called yourself the Messiah because they knew that anybody that got crucified, remember in Galatians, anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. So Roman shame, Jewish shame, and then the shame of bearing the sins of the world. My God, my God, even you have left me. This is what N.T. Wright says. He said, love took Jesus to the cross, despising that shame all the way along. Love kept Jesus on the cross when shame tried to rip him down. And love when Jesus said it is finished, love crushed shame embedded in the powers of darkness so that today shame has no power except the power that we give it. And so not trying to be curt, not trying to be simplistic. I hate simple answers. You know, here's the list. Read this list, change your life. No, no, no. Try this on for size if we're looking for a healing pathway. Vulnerability, the vulnerability that our Savior led us with. Met by his love, pushes back shame. And the reason vulnerability is so important is because like if I'm saying to my, my brother Alex that I love him, and by the way, I love you. I really do. I've grown to love you in the few short months we've been together. If I say to him, 
I love you, Alex. And Alex knows, yeah, but Kevin doesn't know me because I've kept my mask on. Then he will intuitively know that I'm not loving him. I'm loving a caricature of him. So for love to have its full power, we've got to take off our mask, which is why Paul says in Ephesians 4, stop lying to one another. Because we're members of one another. So when Alex takes off his mask and and he says, this is what I didn't want you to know, Kev, but this is part of what's real. And the love of God through me hits him. He begins to heal. So here's the question. Are we so done with shame that we're ready to gulp, get vulnerable? A sister asked me this morning, where do I start? I said, why not start with, why not start with your heavenly father? Paul says, God hasn't given us a spirit of fear and a bondage again, but he's given us the Holy Spirit of adoption that causes our hearts to cry out, Abba, Father. When I come home from church, my little girl Andrea would run to the window and cry out, Daddy's home. Daddy's home. That's Romans 8, 15. Paul is saying, yes, he's the creator. He is the sovereign. He is the Lord. He's the king. But he's inviting you to know him as a son or a daughter, as your Abba, so that when you think about him, you can't help but cry out to him, sometimes in joy, sometimes in great sorrow. And then he meets you there because he's your Abba. He's your father. He loves you. I said to this dear precious sister, what would it be like if today as you just went out the door, as you just began to take off your mask with God that you might have thought, he's going to be so mad if he knows. By the way, he already knows. I often think of parents of two-year-olds. The two-year-olds are out there. They don't think, you ever watch a two-year-old? They're out there. They don't think their parent sees them, and they're going. (laughs) The parent knows. But when that two-year-old gets in trouble, what does the parent say? Come to me, sweetie. And I can help you. They already knew. But they wanted the, the, the child to turn. There's something magical that happens when we turn toward the one we know who loves us. And we, we get honest. And then healing occurs. What if we started by just getting maybe more vulnerable than we've ever been with the God who says, I'm your father. I'm your Abba, father. That term that If you're on the streets of Jerusalem today, you'll hear little kids running around going, Abba, Abba, he is that to you and to me. When my girls were little, they would get in pain, run up, climb up into my chest. They would sob out their mess, their pain, their darkness. And then in about 10 minutes, without so much as a thank you, they'd push me away and go play. What happened? They gave me their ashes and I gave them my beauty. They gave me their fear, and I gave them my courage. They gave me their shame, and I gave them my love. And sometimes without saying a word, they felt the healing to the point that they could go live. What about starting with him? But then finally, and this really is finally, usually when I'm preaching and I'm going along, I'll say finally about six times, but this is the real I do have one story after this, but this is finally before the final story. (laughs) Shame on me, right? Um, Can you imagine this verse written by Peter, 
who was there when Jesus said, abide in my love. That's it. Peter, who in shame denied Christ and came back and Jesus said, do you love me? Are we doing Because that's it. It's that relationship. You're good. He says to the early church in Asia Minor, above all things. And you know what above all things means in Greek? It means above all things. It's very, very sophisticated. Have fervent love for one another. For that love will cover a multitude of sins. I think what it's saying is that the body of Christ is intended to be the healing community where out there we don't feel very safe. So we might be more judicious about opening up and saying this is who I really am, depending on the scenario, what love calls for. In here where Christ dwells with his people, the one whose love took him to the cross, kept him on the cross, crushed the powers on the cross for us. Here, we can come in and take our masks off. And so when our mess hits the love that is received in the body of Christ, we begin to heal. I'm gonna tell you this final story. I met in my second church in Detroit, we pastored two churches in Detroit, the last one deep in the hood, the other one in, on the edge of Detroit. And one Sunday morning, I was a young pastor. I had just come off of that near suicide attempt. I had just read the Ragamuffin Gospel by Brennan Manning, just begun to experience the love of God in a new way. So I was a, a real baby in terms of the love of Jesus. But she said, will you go see my ex-husband in, in uh, the Macomb County Jail? He was waiting to get sentenced to prison. And I said, what's he in for? And she goes, it was sexual assault. And as Dan told me his story later, this is one of the most broken, shame-based human beings that I've ever met. His dad came back from Vietnam, a wreck, addicted. As many of our good brothers and sisters who fought there came back and the war, what they saw, I mean, he was just a mess. And so he used to just beat Dan, this little kid, when he was a little boy. And the shame was just downloaded. His daddy's shame, God love him, was just downloaded into him. So by the age of eight, he was breaking and entering in the neighborhood. And then he started using drugs. He finally got the heroin. And he told me about several times when he woke up with a needle in his arm and he was blue, he almost died. And then he started acting out toward women in abusive and abusive ways. I can't even, I wouldn't say it makes company so much of what I knew about his brokenness in that area. So that's the guy I met that day when I, when, when I went out with my Bible. I had no, I, I, I skipped the class in seminary about going to visit folks in prison. So I had no idea what I was doing, but I knew I had a contact visit, sat down. They brought Dan in. He was, he was all, you know, muscular, just a big guy, shaved head, and he looked meaner than a snake, man. Wounded. He came in, he was all manacled, so he shuffled over to the table, sat down, put his arms there, looked at me, and if looks could have killed, I didn't know what to do. So I opened up the Bible, started reading something out of the Gospel of John about the love of Jesus. And I could tell after about 
three minutes. He wasn't having any of it. So I closed the Bible and I'm not kidding you. I did not know what to do, but I can tell you what happened. The tears started as I was looking down because I didn't know what to do. The tears started coming down in my, out of my eyes. Remember, I was a rookie with the love of God, but I'm convinced, I am convinced that those were the tears of Christ and his love being, being cried through me for this broken son. It's what happens when you begin to experience that love. You can't not. I wasn't trying. I didn't have a plan. I didn't press my tear ducts. It just happened. I pushed my Bible aside. I got up, went around the table. Dan stood up. He knew the visit was over and so did I. The guard was standing there. And I took spontaneously, I took Dan in my arms and I kissed him. If you know anything about prison ministry, you know you're not, you're not supposed to be kissing the inmates. <laughs> I kissed him on his cheek, had him like this, leaned over this way. And then I whispered, not just whispered, I whispered in his ear. <laughs> I look back today, even Alex, I'm like, what? But that's what came out of me. I think it was the love of God that came out. I think Jesus was whispering in his ear. I said, I love you, man. And I'm with you all the way home. And then I left. I went out in the parking lot and I, I literally, I beat the living tar out of myself. What did I do why didn't I just say, see you in court? I'll send you a card. Shame. Dan went back into his cubicle. And he told me this later. He said to himself, what just happened to me? Don't miss this. Whatever that was, I've got to have more. Inside that broken man, was a heart created by the God of love that was looking for someone, looking for him with love and delight. And when his pain met the love of Jesus and broken down me, he began his healing journey on the spot that day. The powers of darkness could not withstand the power of the love of Christ. That love followed him to the next eight years of prison. He didn't trust Christ for eight years, but he knew, he'd tell stories, God's after me, God's after me, man. Finally, a little Southern Baptist preacher came into the uh, prison, preached a sermon. He trusted Christ, did the last eight years of his sentence. He did, ended up doing 18 years without one major ticket, which is a miracle. Came out, and when he was released from confinement after he got out of prison, he came to our church, and that first Sunday or second Sunday, we had him serve communion. And here's shame-based, broken, Dan Schoenfeld with the body and the blood representing the love of the cross. Healing from that shame. Knowing that love to the point that he gave me one of his, his Bibles from prison. Marked up everywhere favorite passage, Isaiah 53, which was triple marked up. And at the top of that great passage, which describes the love of Jesus for us on the cross, he had written in bold letters and outlined, I love you, Jesus. 
If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks again for listening and have a great rest of your day.